All right, continuing our study here on the listener's commentary of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. In this session, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And in a lot of ways, the chapter break between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 is unfortunate because it causes us to think we're starting a new topic when we're not really start starting a new topic here in chapter 5. We're changing the angle of the same topic. The end of chapter 4 was about the coming of the Lord Jesus. Well, the first paragraph of chapter 5 is about the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's just answering a different question about it. And so we have sort of like two parts of the same discussion here about, tell me a little bit more about what's going to happen with regard to the coming of Jesus. So at the end of chapter 4, what we looked at in our last session, Paul wrestled with the specific question that the Thessalonians were struggling with, and that is, what's the place of the dead in Christ with regard to Jesus' coming? And Paul assures them that their place is safe and secure. In fact, they're going to actually be resurrected and get their glorified body first. And so, encourage one another with those words. Here, in chapter 5, 1 through 11, the specific topic is, when is all of this going to happen, and how do we prepare for that? Uh, how do we live in view of when this is going to happen. And so that's the topic here is more about timing. And I suppose it's possible that, that question really grew out of the former question for the Thessalonians. Wait, some of our fellow believers has died. When is Jesus going to come back? And, and how will we know when that's going to happen, right? And so it's possible that the question about that grew out of some fellow believers dying is also related to this. However it all came about in their circumstance, the reality is these two paragraphs go together as one discussion about the coming of the Lord. And so here in chapter 5, Paul writes, Now, as to the periods and the times, brothers and sisters, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Uh, and so Paul here is basically saying, as concerning the timing of it, that phrase, periods and times, two different words that in classical times, there was a formal distinction really between those two words. But in Hellenistic times, the time period when Paul is writing, that distinction was being recognized less and less. These two just tended to be joined together without a conscious awareness of a distinction between, like, uh, you know, the chronology of things and, you know, like there's no specific distinction. It's more just timing in general. So what he's really saying is now as to when this is going to occur, as to when the coming of the Lord is going to occur that I just wrote about there in the last paragraph. So now as to the timing of this, brothers and sisters, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Like, I really shouldn't have to write you about this. Why not? Well, Paul explains why in verse 2. For, giving the reason, verse 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. Presumably, the reason Paul knows they know that is he told them that. He taught them that. Even though he was only with them a short time, this was part of his regular Christian teaching, helping them understand that the day of the Lord was going to come like a thief in the night, helping them understand some things about the coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And so he just assumes that, look, I really don't need to write to you about this because you already know some things about this. Nonetheless, they're having some issues with it. And so he's going to just reemphasize some things and clarify some things for them. So you don't need anyone to write anything to you about this because you know full well 
Notice what he says, that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. That phrase, day of the Lord, actually derives from the Old Testament. Um, and it refers there in the Old Testament to a, a day of judgment on the wicked, but a day of salvation for the righteous. In the Old Testament, it's not always even referring to final judgment. It's just a day when the Lord shows up to judge the wicked and deliver the righteous. In the New Testament, it's used consistently of the last day. So all those little days of the Lord in the Old Testament are pointing to and looking forward to the ultimate great final day of the Lord, the last day, when the wicked will be no more, they'll be judged once and for all, and salvation, full, complete, final salvation will come for the righteous. And so, Paul says, that final day, that last day, that great and ultimate day of the Lord will come, he says, like a thief in the night. How does a thief in the night appear? Unexpected, sudden, surprise, right? That's the idea. Unpredictable. You don't know when it's going to happen. Um, in fact, Jesus in Matthew 24 uses the same imagery and says, if the owner of the house knew at what time the thief was coming, oh, he's going to break in at 2.20 a.m. If he knew that, he'd be waiting and ready for him. Um, Right? But that's not the way it works. These don't break in when you expect. They don't schedule that so you can put it on your calendar. It comes suddenly, unexpectedly, with surprise. And that's the point Paul says, you guys know that. You know, we don't know when this is going to happen, is his point. Um, you know full well that the day of the Lord is coming just like a thief in the night. That's the way it's going to work with that same sort of suddenness and surprise. And we need to hear that, Christians, because there has been well over 200 different predictions of the coming of Jesus since the 1940s. So in the last 70 or 80 years, there's been well over 200 predictions of the coming of Jesus. Somehow we have missed this verse and verses like it that says, it's going to come like a thief in the night. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. Paul, and no New Testament writer, ever offered a detailed timetable of when it would occur. It's going to come like a thief in the night. Paul goes on in verse 3, and it actually gives more details to this. Notice what he says. It's going to happen while they're saying peace and safety. Then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And so this day of the Lord, it's going to be a day of judgment upon the wicked. It's going to happen, notice, while they're saying peace and safety. The idea of that phrase, peace and safety, is this false sense of security. Everything's good. Life is going well. There are no problems. Look, the world is, is great. In fact, you see that phrase showing up even in the Old Testament, peace and safety, as this kind of idiom for this false sense of security. You see it in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, or Jeremiah 8, 11, Ezekiel 13, 10. This same kind of phrase shows up for, oh, the wicked are just going about their life. Everything seems good. They feel good about life. There's, there's peace and safety. All is well. That's the idea. And then he says, Sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Again, we need to hear that because there's been so much talk about signs of the times, signs of the end. Oh, and all these terrible events coming before uh, Jesus's return, before the day of the Lord. But again, that misunderstands specific texts where those signs show up. Um, for example, Matthew 24, Luke 21, 
Mark 13, those texts all describing the same event, the signs there are of the destruction of Jerusalem, not of the end. And when those texts are read in context. And so when it comes to the end, we don't really have signs. Um, they're saying peace and safety. They have this false sense of security. The world seems to be going along at a fine clip. And then out of the blue, um, labor pains will come upon them like on a pregnant woman, right? Destruction's going to happen immediately, this judgment and the coming of Jesus, and they will not escape. But, he says to, to Christians, but to you, brothers and sisters, you fellow Christians, you're not in darkness so that that day would overtake you like a thief. So, fellow Christian, though it's going to overtake the wicked like a thief, though it's going to surprise them and be unexpected to them, uh, and then all of a sudden out of the blue, it's like, whoa, what's happening? For you, O Christian, he says, not the case. It's not going to overtake you like a thief. Why not? Because you are not in darkness. What does he mean by that? Well, let's keep reading and trace his thought and see if we can't figure out what he seems to mean here. Verse 5, 4, he's explaining what he means. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. And so you're not in darkness, right? Like you're not stumbling about in life, not knowing where the world is going, not knowing what's going to happen. That seems to be the picture of not in darkness, this idea of we actually know what's up in the world. We know really who's in charge of the world. We know that there is going to be a great and final ultimate day. And we know it could happen any moment. So we are not in darkness, but he says, you are all sons of light and sons of day. To be the son of something meant your that's your character. That's who you are. You're in that category. You belong to that. And you have the character of that. So we, we belong to light. We belong to the day. We're of the light. We're of the day. And we have the character of light people, of day people. What does that mean? Well, he explains. For we are not of night nor of darkness. And so the world is of the night. The world is of darkness. And so the character of darkness, the character of night, he says, that's not who we are. We're, we're day people, not night people. So then let's not sleep as others do, but let's be alert and sober. And so he's using this imagery of physical sleep for a picture of uh, moral and spiritual sleep. And physical alertness and awakeness and clear-headedness for spiritual and moral clear-headedness and alertness. And so he says, since we're day people and night and not night people, let's not sleep. In other words, let's not just go about life with this false sense of security as if the world's just going to keep going as it always has, um, not aware that uh, there is a true king and he's going to come at any moment, right? And so we're not night people, we're day people, so let's be alert and sober, alert, awake, engaged, vigilant, watching, right? This is the imagery of alertness that's used all throughout the New Testament. We need to be alert. We need to pay attention. We know the Lord is coming, and we need to be sober. Sober, literally, obviously, the opposite of being drunk, but became this picture of clear-headed, right? Have your head screwed on straight, right? Like, to be drunk is you don't make good decisions, you don't think straight, your, your judgment is clouded, right? And you're not paying attention to things around you. But to be sober, you're clear-headed, and you're watchful, and you're alert. So, verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, 
those who are drunk get drunk at night. Like night people have night behaviors. Uh, and he uses the imagery of sleep and drunkenness where they're not engaged, they're not watchful, they're not vigilant, and things just overtake them. That's the picture there. But since we're of the day, let us be sober. So we're day people, that's our character, and thus we should be sober, right? We should um, not be drunk. We should not be, uh, you know, like apathetic or unattentive or, you know, lacking in good judgment. We need to be sober and alert and watchful. And then how do we do that? How do we be sober? Well, he actually tells us having, that next word, having put on, and he's going to describe some character traits, that having is a participle that tells the means by which we're sober. So let's be sober. How? By having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so we go about our life sober, clear-headed by putting on faith, love, and the hope of salvation. Faith and love is a breastplate and the hope of salvation. Notice the same imagery of spiritual armor that Paul develops full four later in his ministry when he writes uh, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter six, the armor of God there. And the imagery is used differently. There it's the breastplate of righteousness. Here's the breastplate of faith and love. Uh, the helmet is the same, helmet of the hope of salvation here and there. This is an imagery that Paul is using as he's helping people think through how they go about their life. Like we are, we are in a spiritual battle, and so we wear spiritual armor. But the armor is the armor of Christian characteristics. Here, specifically, this famous triad, faith, love, and hope. And so how do we be sober? Well, we go about our life in faith, looking to God, depending on God, trusting to God, listening to God. We have our confidence in God and in his Messiah, Jesus, right? So we have faith in Jesus, the Messiah, confidence in him. We go about our life with love, agape, love for people, deep love for God and deep love for people, whether believers or unbelievers. We're marked by love, and that shapes our life. And so we live our life in love, and we've put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. In other words, we fill our mind with our Christian hope. We fix our gaze on our Christian hope. And so uh, we look forward to the salvation that's going to be ours, the deliverance that's going to be ours when Jesus returns. And our mind is filled with that. And as a result, we're clear-headed as we go about life. And we're not going to be caught off guard by the coming of Jesus like a thief. And that's not because we know when it's going to happen, but because we know that it's going to happen and we're prepared for it by how we go about our life. Our life is built on faith, love, and hope. And then in verse 9, Paul amplifies this idea that we've put on the helmet of the hope of salvation, and he explains what he means by that. And he says, for God hasn't destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we fix our gaze on the hope of salvation, it's those two things. We're, we're not destined for wrath. We're not going to experience the judgment that is due to the wicked. We're going to obtain salvation. We're going to obtain it. It's going to be ours. And so that day of the Lord for those who are in Christ is going to be a day of salvation, not a day of wrath for the wicked. It'll be the day of wrath, but not for us. We're going to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. How does that work? Well, verse 10, 
who died for us, who died for us. The reason it's going to be a day of salvation for us isn't, again, because we're so righteous and because we've so earned it, but because Jesus died for us and he he absorbed the wrath of God that we deserve because of our rebellion against God. And thus, he took the wrath for us so that that final day will not be a day of wrath for us, but a day of salvation because we're in Christ. And so we put on the hope of salvation. We look forward to that 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 great day when we're going to be saved fully, finally, and completely because of what Jesus did for us. So he says, so that whether we are awake or whether we are asleep, meaning whether we have died or whether we are alive. And so he's actually mixing his metaphors a little bit. He's been using sleeping as a metaphor for not uh, wise living and not being vigilant. But here he's gone back to where how he used it in uh, chapter four, that whether we're awake or asleep, that means whether we're alive or whether we're dead when Jesus returns. And whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we will be together with the Lord when he comes. And Paul's already explained how that all plays out in the preceding paragraph there at the end of chapter four. And so now he's wrapped this whole thing up. He's brought it full circle. He's let us know that the ultimate result of our Christian hope is that we will live together with each other, but with the Lord ultimately and fully. And so he restates once again the encouragement then in verse 11 here, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. And so that's the pastoral purpose. Even here, he, he's reminding us that, look, encourage one another. We don't know exactly when this is going to happen. It is going to come like a thief, but you're not going to be overtaken by that day. Why not? Because you're day people and you're prepared for it by the character of your life that's based on the faith love, and hope that's found in Jesus. And so because of all of that, you know that, that it's going to come at any moment. You know every morning you wake up, you're a day closer than you were the day before. Uh, you know that it's going to be a day of salvation for you. And you know that you'll be with the Lord forever when he comes. And so build each other up, encourage one another, just as you also are doing. And so as we wrap up this text, let me just encourage you in this way that the best way to prepare for the final day is not to get out some big fancy chart and try to compare it with the news stories and you know look at the Bible and look at the news and try to figure out when it's going to happen. Totally inappropriate, totally wrong. The New Testament is, routinely says we don't know when it's going to happen. The way to prepare for that day is by the character of your life. The way to prepare for that day is by putting on faith, love, and hope, and then living out those virtues, those theological virtues in your everyday life. You live by faith. You live with love. You live marked by hope because of what Jesus has done for you. That's the way to prepare for that day. And as a result of doing that, you will be alert and you will be clear-headed and level-headed ready and prepared for the day that Jesus comes. That's how we prepare. We don't prepare by trying to predict the end. We prepare by trying to live today and every day the way Jesus would have us live as his people in this world.